Hey, this is Gary Cerrone from Hurt Smile and Extreme, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Paul Stanley, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 323 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 323, we are joined by Chips Enough of the band Enough's Enough. We've got a great new album out called Clowns Lounge. Uh, we're going to talk to him in just a minute. And also joining us on the program, author James Campion, who's got a really cool book called Shouted Out Loud, talking all about Destroyer from Kiss. So, Without further ado, let's play the first single from Clown's Lounge. This is Dog on a Bone from Enough's Enough. show from the band Enough's Enough. We have founding member Chip's Enough. How you doing, Chip? Uh, pretty good for my age. How are you? Uh, I guess I'm doing about the same. I can't complain. Um, you guys are about to drop a new record, which has got kind of a collection of older material called uh, Clown's Lounge. Um, can you talk a little bit about what kind of brought you to this point of the career to kind of go back and pull some of this material out of the, the vault, so to speak? Well, it's an archival record. I got a call from Derek Shulman, the first, the guy who actually discovered Enough's Enough. He was the lead singer of a band called Gentle Giant. Got his own imprint over at Polygram, signed by Jovi, Cinderella, and then uh, they hired him to go over to uh, open up Atco Records, which is through Atlantic. And he signed Pantera, ACDC, Bad Company, and luckily enough, we were in that fold. And enough enough put the album out in '89, and on here I am, 27 years later, I get a telephone call from Shulman saying, "Do you have any enough enough material? I want to put a record out. I know Donnie's not touring with the band, but do you have anything with his voice?" I said, "I certainly do. Let me see what I got. I've been collecting material through years with Enough's Enough. I have mm. quite an extensive catalog, but I want to make sure that we're going to put a record out. It's going to be quality." And I went back to all the old stuff where it was unreleased, not finished, but there was some really good moments there. But for some reason, at the time, the band was so prolific 
songs just slipped through the cracks. I sent them three songs, and Frontiers loved it. They said, let's do a whole record. Something and that's where I am right now. I wasn't expecting to put another record out. I really wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, last year we put out uh, Covered in Gold, which is a collection of cover songs mm-hmm. of, of bands that we've grown up to love. Everybody was doing it. I watched Petty and Foo Fighters and all the different bands putting out cover records. I thought, maybe we'll put one out, too, sure. to hold the fans over. People have been clamoring for years, waiting for another Enough Snap album, and I didn't know we were going to be able to put one out. But uh, after going through the catalog, I realized, hey, there's some good material here. There's a few records here. And I picked the tw- uh, 12 of what I thought strongest songs for an album. And I listened to it, and the label loved it, and, and here I am. Uh, another Enough Snap album. I think this is like number 20 for us. Yeah, it seems. So it, it is. Surprising. I mean, when you took these songs, were they? Did you have to go in and have some parts recorded to go with some old parts, or or what percentage of this is kind of vintage, and what percentage did you have to kind of go in and add stuff to? No, it's it's an archival record. It's it's, it's, the whole thing's vintage, I think. Okay. Uh, We just did a little bit of tweaking. It took me a few, maybe five, six weeks of sneaking in the studio. I went to Mm -hmm. Chicago Recording Company, and I worked with Chris Shepard, who. He does Costello and the Pumpkins and Flaming Lips. He's really good. Coldplay, he's worked with everybody, and he helped me put the record together along with this guy named Chris Diamonds at a place called Stonecutter Studio, and he's worked with Ozzy and Styx and White Lion, and he's made some great rock record. Alice Cooper, he's worked with some great artists. And I, I think the best thing for any artist to do is go out and try to find heavyweights that know how to make records. Mm-hmm. And I gave the guy the tracks, and a lot of this stuff was off the air tapes. Yeah, was uh, kind of... you know, even though it was all recorded on two inch, uh, it was all analog records, which no one really does anymore. Everybody's going into Pro Tools right now. It's much, much easier and faster. Uh, these were the band basically in the studio playing live, count to four and go oh, and start the song. Right. And uh, you know, performances mean a lot. If you don't get a good performance on two inch, you're doomed. It's going to sound terrible. Right. And uh, I think that I listened to the performances, and those are great musicians. I've been so blessed. Tiny V, uh, he'll go down as one of the greatest singers of our generation, I think. Uh, very underrated. Sure. You know, when I go out and see guys like Aerosmith or Foo Fighters or uh, Green Day or Cheap Trick, those guys hail him because he's a wonderful singer-songwriter. So, you know, to have him on the record, his voice sounds terrific. The late, great Derek Frigo playing guitarist. I didn't touch one thing there because the guy's a genius. Mm-hmm. Great guitar player, old school. Um, I I pretty much didn't touch a lot of this stuff. I could only add on a lot of these tricks. I couldn't subtract. Certainly. And I think it's better that way because I wanted the authenticity on this record. It's a real rock record played. No pro tools, no cheating. Band in the studio playing live with very minimal overdubs. And that was the stuff I went in there just to try to tweak it up a little bit. Uh, on overdubs, a couple small little parts. And then, of course, it took us weeks to master it. That was the toughest part. Because I, uh, the label was very demanding. Frontier is a good label, good major label, and they want quality work. And I wanted to make sure I gave them a record that was rock solid. Uh, but after weeks of going through it, uh, the label finally accepted the record, and I've been getting, the reviews have been terrific right now. I'm totally uh, flabbergasted by uh, the, we've always been the critics, Carlings, and I don't know if it's because uh, of the songs or because of the lack of album sales. We sold quite a few records in the early days. Uh, album sales are different now. You have to pretty much go out on the road and, uh, and tour and travel, and hopefully there'll be somebody out in the crowd that does movies, soundtracks, TV shows, commercials, some producer that'll pick up the material and 
try to help you a little bit, help your brand with songs. But that's pretty much it. It's very difficult for any artist out there. Uh, but for bands that have a name a little bit, like Enough's Enough, uh, mm-hmm. I think we got another chance there. Still a little bit of gas in the tank. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to hear you mention that you know you have a label wanting an album. It seems anymore that labels almost have lost the relevance, and people don't even care if you have an album. You know, a band, you know, will go out on the road just kind of on their namesake alone. It doesn't, you know, nobody wants to hear new material. But in a situation with you guys, you're pulling, you know, some gems out of the, you know, out of the closet, so to speak. That that I think are really going to make a lot of people stand up and take notice. Um, Chip, when you went back and listened to to what you had. Um, were there some tracks that you know that maybe were not didn't make the first album, second album that you listen to now, and you know kind of scratch your head why you didn't pick them, or are there some ones that maybe you listen to where you go, God, why did I write that, uh, or why did we play that song? Do you have any kind of either end of the extreme there? No, mo- most of the songs on every single record they eventually see the light of day. On the second album, Strength, Donnie and I decided let's do a double record. Uh, and be the first band to come out with a sophomore release with you know thirty something songs, sure. and the record company Atco Records at the time uh, they were very wide open to enough stuff just doing a record on their own. And uh, in fact, on every single enough stuff album, there was no influence. Labels didn't come in like they do with big bands, and they would say, "Okay, you guys would like this, but let's change this. Let's do this. Right. I got this idea here." They've never done that with enough stuff. Maybe it's a blessing that could be a curse. Don't know. I just know that we were so focused, even though uh, the band at times were, uh, we found ourselves in, in questionable positions because of a substance abuse or, you know, a promiscuity. We just, we just couldn't focus when it came to uh, our lifestyle. Right. When it came to the music, that uh, that wasn't a problem. We've always, Donnie and I, have always focused on coming up with great songs and uh, killer records. So. I know those records, even the second record when we did uh, 30-something songs we did for Spring, the record company finally came down to hear the album when it was finished, and Derek Schoen says, hey, guys, we have a good problem. And I said, what's that? He says, too many good songs. So we just we cut it in half and kept it, and then later on, on uh, records to follow, we would add those songs on because they were great recordings, and we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making those records. We were in considerable debt. We didn't see any money. Uh, it wasn't as glamorous as everybody thinks it is. You know, our focus was to make great records, and whatever it took, that's what we did. And budgets were ridiculous back then. Nowadays, the record companies want to give you a little bit of money and to make a record, and it's it's almost impossible to make a killer record like in the old days, right? Uh, without a budget, uh, we found a way how to do it here, and I think that uh, the label and I think the fans are going to be really happy with this record. I know our rock contemporaries are because I, all my buddies have been calling me going. Man, I heard a couple of tracks on a new record, Chip. Great job. You and Donnie nailed it. So uh, that makes me feel good. That's the gas in my engine, yeah. you know, to hear the guys who I grew up to love endorsing our band. Yeah, and it is interesting. I remember I was working in radio when you guys kind of first kind of really made your mark. And you guys were always kind of a, a cool niche band because you weren't necessarily lumped in with a lot of the hair bands that you know and that was kind of the later ages of the hair bands you know when the nelsons and you know some of those bands started to come along and, and frankly kind of ruin it for the rest of them but you guys always had so, something very different to your music uh, i felt and um it, it was never, well, in- never really uncool to like you guys well our influences were always we always weren't probably on our sleeve and it was always bands from 
the past, you know, mm. uh, you know, of course, the obvious ones, uh, Beatles and Queen and uh, Hoople and Sweet mm. and a lot of the English stuff, The Who and uh, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, you know, we all love that stuff, but we, hey, listen, we love the Sex Pistols. Sure. We listen to any, our Cheap Trick and uh, listen to, you know, love Aerosmith and there's so many great bands out there to pick from and you show me a band without influences, and I'll show you a band who hasn't written one fucking note. Right. So we, we, we've we always paid respect to our forebears. There's some great bands out there, and that's helped set the tone for the band. But we weren't listening to what was happening at the time. You know, maybe one band, Jellyfish, that, that we really tripped our trigger in the early yeah. days. Yeah, that was a for contemporary. Most, and, yeah, and we, we always respected the Motley Crews and the Guns N' Roses and the Poisons and stuff. We understand what those guys were doing. Uh, but when we first shot our uh, first single new thing, uh, we were flamboyant and colorful, and it was more like a glitter rock thing. And everybody goes, "Oh, what glam band?" And we said, "We'll just right. take it because we got we got some support." Yeah. And when you got TV playing your song every single day, that's going to help elevate your perception. And you can go out and you can tour and you can play, but it also bites you in the ass later on because people listen with their eyes instead of their ears. Yeah. But we were never like any of those bands at all, musically wise. It was more like the heavy metal Beatles. Yeah, and it, it, it almost in some respects, I, I would think you guys might have gone completely in a different. If you had peaked, you know, that first album had come out maybe four years earlier. Um, you know, Lord only knows the pressure you probably would have faced from a record label. You know, and, you know, you, you mentioned about not. Say you know, that. I'm sorry. It's interesting you say that because uh, uh, last year I put a record out. It was called Adler's Enough. It's, it's actually my solo record. It's called Chips Enough. Strange Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little plug right there. You want to check it out on Cleopatra Records. And uh, Adler played on the record with me and wrote the songs. And he said the exact same thing. He says, Chippy, if you guys came out four years earlier, you would have been massive and huge. Came out just a little bit but too late. It came out, I think the first album came out in 1989 in uh, August, August 22nd, 1989. I'll never forget the date. Record came out. Tour bus pulled up. Doc McGee was managing the band. And I got a phone call that day from Donnie saying, I can't leave, I can't go on tour, you got to sing the songs. Chip, I go, what are you, crazy? Hmm. He says, I just can't leave my chick behind. I said, you got, bro, come on by the house, I'll give you a little bit of pot, and you just uh, no, no, don't even worry about it. I'll take care of everything. And he showed up at the house, and I got him on the bus. <laughs> we split, and uh, I said, we'll be back in a month. And I remember saying goodbye to my wife and saying, I'll see you in, in, in 30 days, and I was gone for a year and a half. And yeah. that record took off. And we we had a gold record. And it was action-packed. Uh, tours uh, all sold out. We were we first we uh, supported Badlands, and then uh, we went out with uh, a couple other great groups that uh, supported us, and we were headlining, doing great. And then we found ourselves uh, in a weird position. Motley Crue was going to take us out on tour. We we're going to go over to Canada, and evidently uh, they changed their mind and took Faster Pussycat out, and we had to find a tour. And uh, we're, we knew that we needed something else. We wanted to put that record over and get it to a platinum status. We thought we had what it took there. And uh, the record was strong. We, had, we, were four, we were too deep in the singles with New Thing and Fly on the Show. And there was another, we knew we had another couple songs on the record that could have been singles. And uh, I went to a concert one night uh, on the recommendation of uh, Barbara Scottell, late Barbara Scottell, who was our agent along with Frank Barcelona. And they said, you know, sometimes when bands go out and meet the bands and hang out with each other, they can get the tours instead of, you know, uh, the agency trying to find it. 
And uh, I seen the Nelson show, and they said, hey, what are you guys doing? We said, we're looking for a tour. And they said, we want to take you guys out. And a week later, we were on a tour with Nelson. Maybe that wasn't a great move for us, but that was the only move. Sure. It was either follow around Guns N' Roses and, and skid, skid Row playing Sheds and Arenas or waiting and do another club tour. And we, we thought it was time to take it to the next level. And we took that tour, played the packed houses every night, but it was to 13, 14, 15-year-old little kids. Yeah, and uh, maybe it wasn't in our best interest because the music was a little over their head. It was a little maybe too smart for them. Uh, but I thought it was a good tour at the time. Band was happy that we were out there playing, and maybe that hurt us a little bit. Maybe it didn't. The fact of the matter is, how many guys are out there still? Twenty albums out, still putting records out right now. Not many guys. The average life expectancy of any band is five years. For enough stuff to still be going. And come on, I've lost a couple of members. We lost the great Ricky Parent. I lost Derek Frigo in 2004, Ricky in 2007, Donnie hasn't been touring with the band since 2013, there's one fucking guy left, me, I didn't want it this way, bro, I really didn't, I, the fans deserve, they have the best, enough stuff they can have, and I'm going to go and continue to do stuff, I've stolen the template from Genesis, mm-hmm. when Peter Gabriel left, Phil Collins took over these vocal duties, that's what I'm doing here with Enough's Enough, um, I didn't want this gig, but now that I'm out there playing shows and we're touring around, the fans have spoken. People dig the band. It yeah. sounds great. And instead of me going out and finding a guy, no one sings like Johnny V. The closest you're going to get is me, and I'm not a pimple on his ass. <laughs> but I'll do the best I can every single night singing these songs, and I know that I can do a decent job, and I know that the, uh, the fans will be pleasantly surprised when they hear these songs that tripped their trigger in the early days when they were younger, and they at first they fell in love, or the first time they went out and and uh, found something that really was ex- uh, exciting to them and uh, left a great memory and I can bring that back to them every single night that's a good thing I like to make people happy for an hour or two hours a night getting away from all the riffraff of what the world offers that's a good thing bro yeah that, I think anybody would be happy to have to be able to say that you know that they entertain and make people happy for any period of time so Chip I, I don't blame you whatsoever I know you guys are doing a bunch of dates looks like with the Ace uh, fairly in the new year uh, hopefully you'll find your way to Pittsburgh um, I, I don't actually recall the last time you guys were in town I know you guys did a club show on the first tour I, I do recall that vividly but uh, I, I look forward to seeing you guys come back through Western PA again soon I, I always love Pittsburgh real blue collar city hard working people I came through listen Pittsburgh knows enough stuff for sure because I came through there about three, four years ago, and I played a benefit for a kid who had cancer, and we played at the Hard Rock, oh. and it was completely jam-packed, sold out, people went crazy, they loved the band, it was a wonderful evening, and here I am four years later, five years later, and I'm ready to come back out to Pittsburgh again, I have a respect, I've uh, got, got a great football team, uh, obviously playing much better than the Bears, yeah. and uh, I'm looking forward to, it's a real rock and roll town, Yeah. everybody yeah. tours there. I don't think Ace will come through in the summertime, in the spring, I'm sorry, in the wintertime, because he wants to tour where it's warm. Yeah. But uh, anything possible for next year, and I see us coming through and playing Pittsburgh, and I'd love you to come out and see the show, and you judge for yourself. It'd be my pleasure, Chip. I want to thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing when you get into town, man. Uh, I wish you and your family a happy holidays, and uh, new enough's enough out tomorrow, my friends, so go check it out. All right, a big thanks to Chips Enough. Again, the new album, Clowns Lounge, is out now. Uh, album actually named after a strip club that the band frequented in their early days. So kind of a cool throwback to some old material. Uh, really enjoyed listening to that. Was a big fan of the band back in the 1989-1990 uh, realm. So it was cool to catch up with Chip. 
going to turn our attention now to author James Campion, who's got a really cool book out now called Shout It Out Loud. It's all about the making of Destroyer. Uh, what it does, I think, that's kind of unique, really focuses on that one album, gives you all the things that led up to the making of the album, how they work with Bob Ezrin, etc., and then takes you right into the writing of the material and uh, the wave that the band wrote on the material. And I think he talked to everybody imaginable and read every Kiss book in the making of this book. So it was a really well-researched book. Really a pleasure to talk to James. So let's talk to James Campion of Shout It Out Loud. You really like my gentlemen my pleasure to welcome to the show uh, author of the book titled shout it out loud the story of kisses destroyer and a making of an american icon we have james campion on the line how you doing james i'm well thank you john thanks for having me so the book what got you specifically interested in writing about just this particular album i mean obviously you touch on the band's formation and, and you know it isn't just that total window in time but i mean the bulk of the book is the recording of destroyer um, what made you want to hone in on that specifically? Well, I started out for um, a publishing concern called Continuum in uh, London. They do a series of books called 33 and a Third. Yes. And um, so I started working on the project for them because they didn't have, I think they have like 180 titles and they didn't have any Kiss albums. So I um, pitched it and uh, they liked the idea. So. Uh, I started doing research, and when I started to do all the interviews for the book, the engineers, the producers, you know, the people around Kiss, I realized it was a larger story than, mm-hmm. you know, a glorified essay. So, um, so that's why I honed in on one record. And Destroyer specifically because it was a huge touchstone in my life, in whether it was pop culture, rock, my musical interests were kind of uh, inspired by a lot of that uh, sort of fantastical cinematic stuff that Bob Ezrin, who I interview in the book, had been doing with Alice Cooper, and then later on he did it with Pink Floyd. Um, so Destroyer kind of fit in that with me, and I've always been fascinated by that album. It's kind of mm-hmm. like um, just something that always really fascinated me, and, I, and it always was never given, as far as I'm concerned, uh, its due in the pantheon of great rock albums from the 1970s. So I figured if I write a book about it and I, I figure out how it was made and how important it really was, that maybe people would re-examine it. So it was kind sure. of a labor of love to me at first. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, I just caught Kiss a few months ago here in uh, in Youngstown, and I believe six songs of the set list from this album right. are still in their set list today. So obviously out of... You know, nine of the original tracks on the album, six of them still make their set list. So, um, obviously, it says something to Kiss's, uh, you know, focus on the importance of the album and also their inability to change the set list, but that's a different story. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, it's true um, in the sense where uh, I write about it at the end of the book. Um, when I was finishing up the book, Kiss had that reality show about the. Um, the L.A. Kiss uh, football team that they bought, the arena football team, and the theme uh, song uh, for the for the show uh, was shouted out loud. And mm-hmm. then um, Monday Night Football was running, you know, a, a Detroit Lion game, and then you know, coming in and out of breaks, they always played Detroit Rock City. It's kind of like the anthem of the city now. Um, Beth, 
uh, after I finished the book and it came out, was in a Toyota commercial or Honda, one of those uh, yeah. car manufacturers. I mean, it, those songs have lasted a lot longer. And in, in '96, when the when the band got back together, Paul, someone asked Paul Stanley, and he said, "You know, I have to admit that we still play all those songs, so it must be really the quintessential Kiss studio album." Of course, Alive being there, mm-hmm. you know, the one that the fans love the most. But yeah, yeah, the, the songs have lasted. It's true. Do you find, and this is just my own fan is you know as a fan of the band that this album is somewhat polarizing amongst kiss fans because I mean, it's certainly different i mean it's obviously not the elder um but you know for a person who might like um you know rock and roll over or uh you know the first three albums this album kind of goes in a different direction you know and may you know i had thought possibly isolate some fans and I, and I was a person who discovered kiss you know this album had already been made i was only like four or five years old when this album came out, so it wasn't for me. It wasn't a new release. Um, did you find a lot of people kind of, you know, when they got to this fourth studio, I'm going, what the heck are they doing here? Sure, because- sure. At, at the time, and then even now, yeah, it's the most mm-hmm. controversial of all Kiss albums. I've had people you either love it or you hate it because I make mm-hmm. the argument in the book, and I've done in other interviews that when you look at the arc of any artist, and I use Bob Dylan or say the Beatles as an example, mm-hmm. you can see where Dylan's going. When he gets to his opus, which is Blonde on Blonde, you can see him. He starts to go electric. He starts to change his lyrical uh, style from more protest uh, to more um, uh, poetic. You could see with the Beatles, their their journey from Rubber Soul into Revolver. So Sgt. Pepper's is not like, where the hell did this come from? Sure. But with Kiss, uh, there is none. You go from you know the three studio albums, which are not great sonic albums mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, and they don't really use the imagery that the makeup and their stage personas have. And then you have Destroyer, which was the reason why it's such a departure is Bob Ezrin, who they never worked with again until, as you mentioned, Music from the Elder. And then they go right back to Rock and Roll Over. So people who love the first three albums of Rock and Roll Over are live, they were shocked at the time with Destroyer. And even to this day, a lot of the discussions I've had with you know people such as yourself or fans say, well, you know, I really love the book, but what Destroyer, I, I don't, it's just Beth and a ballad and strings and a Beethoven and backwards tracks and the opening mm-hmm. three minutes of the album, there's no music. So, yeah, there is a lot, but that's why I love it. It's such a controversial album mm-hmm. based on a band that really didn't deal in controversy. They just gave people what they wanted, and at the time, I argue in the book, if not for Destroyer, they don't become American icons. The Ken Kelly cover, God of Thunder, Detroit Rock City, the overproduction, the really um, real shtick of it was was missing in those early Kiss albums. And I think later on they tried to, in my estimation, they tried to recreate a lot of the things they did on Destroyer, but without the real departure. So it was controversial for the band, it was controversial for their fans, for the press, for their management. So it's it's an eminently interesting story. Yeah, I mean, it is certainly is, and it's got, I mean, even, you know, myself, there's some songs that I love, and there's some songs, like Great Expectations, that I just frankly hate, um, and I think that makes it interesting. I mean, it, it's certainly, you know, not, I mean, some of the earlier albums, I think you, you either like Kiss, and you, you you listen to those albums, and honestly, you probably listen to the live albums to hear those songs more, uh, just because, as you mentioned, the recording quality of those Albums, but this song, you know, there's some, you know, even track to track, there's certainly different flavors. It's not, you know, all songs are going to be in the key of A, and and here's nine of them. You know, this this thing's all over the map. Um, you touched on the cover art, though. 
um, if this had had the cover art of the first album, for example, do you think it would be quite as iconic? I, I would argue that somewhat the image on the front of the album is almost as huge as what's on the album. Correct. And and you can't separate. That's the one thing I dissected or deconstructed in this book. I tried to do the first very intellectual sort of breakdown of Kiss that was ever done. I, I wanted to lift them their art to a loftier sense. And I and I compare it to postmodern art and and what people kind of heaped on the punk movement or the new wave movement in 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 Britain in the early 1980s. That Kiss was sort of a precursor to that, sort of a precursor to the MTV generation. That they didn't give enough credit for that. And I think that if you separate – what happens usually in discussions about Kiss is it's like, well, they're just a makeup band. They're just an mm. image band, and that's it. The music is secondary. Well, that's okay. Uh, that was their thing. That was the 70s. You, mm. you can't separate the image from a lot of bands. And I even make the argument in the book, bringing up Dylan and the Beatles again, that Dylan had an image. Of course, he created this character. It's not even his name. The Beatles created these characters, and then they recreated characters for Sgt. Pepper. Um, so Kiss got, a, got away with all of those sort of subtitle kind of subtexts and just jammed in your face. These are characters. This is an image. The show is a thing, and the music fits in with that. No point, I argue in my book, the Kiss do that any more perfectly than in Destroyer. And as you just mentioned, the cover is everything. There is no Destroyer. It doesn't make Kiss icons if it wasn't for the great uh, comic artist, Ken Kelly, who tells his full story in the book. And it was so mm -hmm. much fun talking to him about that and, and the ideas that they had and, and what Kiss knew they wanted to be, these these superheroes, you know, before that they were the leather-clad oddity with the white makeup, and they kind of fit into the old death of glam thing mm -hmm. and and the New York City milieu. But it wasn't until Destroyer, uh, even above and beyond Alive, where they became comic book heroes. And when you combine that with the fact that they were on the Paul Lind special uh, in late October, and that that uh, just passed the 40th anniversary of that, uh, where they were connected with Halloween, where people dress up as them, and and then later on, of course, they had the Kiss comic, they had the Kiss meets the Fan Phantom TV show, and, and although that lost a lot of their original fans, I argue you would not have Kiss today; they wouldn't have gone above and beyond rock music and become really like say Charlie Chaplin. Uh, in and of their times, icons. So yes, mm. long answer is Ken Kelly helped them become that because he literally made them comic book heroes. Instead of putting the four guys on the cover, we have a painting of them in this almost Greek heroic uh, visage that changes Kiss forevermore. Yeah, I remember as, as a youngster, um, someone I, I went to a, a friend of my parents' house and they had the comic book. So that was literally my first exposure to the band. And then they put on Shout It Out Loud on their turntable or whatever and handed me the sleeve and was like, it's like the Marvel Avengers, you know, and I was of the age where that was my world. You know, it was Spider-Man, it was Captain America, it was the Hulk, it was all those you me know, too. Saturday morning cartoons. Sure. And it was like, holy crap, this is like a cool song with superheroes and then you know I, I had a friend who had the color forms and you know I was probably the perfect demographic for that you know I mean it didn't you know I probably would have liked whatever they put on I mean except great expectations but that's a different story um, you know but it really did soak you in it at that age 
and uh, I applaud that. Now, in the book, you talk um, quite a bit with Bob Ezrin and, and talk a lot about not only the band leading up to the album, but Bob Ezrin leading up to the album and Alice Cooper. Um, do you think his experience with Alice in some ways shaped his work with Kiss, or, or is that just the way Bob was? You know, he kind of had his the way he worked. Uh, the answer is yeah. Um, Bob is not anybody who chooses something unless it jazzes him, mm-hmm. um, unless it, as he says, makes the testicles tingle that mm-hmm. uh, give him a feeling of what he can do with them. And certainly Kiss had it in spades. And you know uh, from reading the book that he had been approached by uh, the band after he had met them in Toronto at a TV show when he was getting this phone call from this kid in Toronto telling him, hey, you, you, you got to do Kiss. You got to do, of course you're going to do Kiss. You did Alice Cooper. It would be perfect. And uh, Bob, you know, saw that immediately. And when he sat down with the guys, as you know, and it's in the book, and he explains this so beautifully, I believe, uh, that he told them, you're missing the point here. You're, pissing, you're missing the pathos behind the ethos. You have an ethos. You have this idea of we're going to make anthemic songs. We, we represent the kids. The fans are the band and the band are the fans and everybody's swept up in this fantasy. But you don't have any emotion behind that. You don't have anything. You're two-dimensional characters. We have to make you three-dimensional. And we have to celebrate the very thing you talked about, the comic book, the horror, um, the heroic aspects of it. So, And Bob did that. You know, I, I, I've since become close with Bob and Alice Cooper too over the years I've done interviews with Alice and he introduced me uh, and him and Dick Wagner, the late Dick Wagner introduced me to uh, Bob and Alice is very effusive in saying that Bob is the Svengali behind Alice, that he gave them these character uh, these concepts that mm-hmm. they were able to not only give to the albums but and give to us 70s kids with great backgrounds, you know, noises and special effects and and strange chord progressions, but also the idea that they use their albums as librettos to take these things on stage and make them real. So there is no real Spider-Man, as you mentioned, but there is a real Kiss and there is a real Alice Cooper, characters that were made as, as um, thematic, dramatic characters that connected to music and then connected to the audience so Ezrin understood that right away and he explained that to the guys in KISS and they embraced it at least Gene and Paul did you know Ace and Peter had their problems with it but Hmm. and and it led to KISS and I think it always stuck with them Gene says in the book you know Bob is the first person to have a real effect on KISS and it was because of that I believe yeah and it's mentioning you mentioned that with Alice because it seems you know that was you know, kind of the era where, you know, Alice Cooper went from being sort of a band to an individual character. Um, right. You know, he kind of jumped in with both feet into that. Um, one of the things when I was reading the book uh, I had to ask myself was if there were any piece of KISS literature ever that you did not read prior to making this book, because it looks like <laughs> probably the most thoroughly researched book I've ever read in oh, rock. Um, how much legwork did this take before you put pen to paper? Um, it was about three plus years of my life. Um, I wrote the original thesis for the book, for lack of a better term, sort of a mission statement or a treatment mm-hmm. for Continuum. And then I already had that. And I already had the parameters of what I wanted to argue or bring across mm-hmm. uh, in the book. 
But it wasn't until I started doing the interviews, as I mentioned, that changed my, you know, my perspective on it. I, I learned a ton of stuff. Like, you know, Destroyer was already in the works before a live hit. You know, there was a, this, still to this day, this myth perpetuated that Alive blew up and then Kiss had all this pressure on them to make Destroyer. That's why they made it so huge and gigantic and, and departure. Uh, that's only half true. They had already been, they already decided to work with Bob. They already started working on the songs. They already started to have an underlying theme. They already accepted the fact that they were going to do a ballad on the record that was sung by the drummer that nobody else played on with string arrangements. These things were already being gestated by the, when, when Alive kicked in. And then, of course, mm. the lawsuits, which I talk about in the book, which were never discussed in any other book. But to answer your question, it was um, a lot of research. Um, because the guys in KISS, um, two of them were writing memoirs at the time, Peter and Ace, they were very nice, but they declined on going on the record. Mm-hmm. I used their books. Uh, Gene, of course... Always wants to have his hand in it or the kiss imprimata, you know. So I wanted it to be a history book that was separate than a kiss thing. Mm-hmm. And I had interviewed Paul in the past, so I used some of his quotes. But for the most part, I had to go back and read all the articles and interviews from Circus Magazine, Cream, Rolling Stone, Crawdaddy, uh, NME, and get those 1976, 24 year old, 25 year old guys in kiss to fill out the book and then I interviewed of course anyone and everyone who had anything to do with it and then I read all the existing books on KISS some of them excellent um, Mm. some of them not so but I I didn't want to be one of those guys that didn't unfold every you know flip over every stone because You know, like when Eddie Trunk interviewed me, and he's kind of on my uh, Mount Rushmore of people I wanted to please because I know he's worked with the band before, and he knows them personally, and he's a big Kiss fan and a, and a huge proponent of rock music and heavy metal, and he's he knows all the nuances. I was writing for guys like him who have also lifted the intellectual discussion on rock music, but also is this crazy fan. So I wanted to make sure that those guys were pleased, and also with Kiss – they're like Star Trek fans or Star Wars fans. They, yeah. they don't. You can't mess up when you're yeah. talking about Kiss, as you probably know, doing a, a podcast like this. Yeah, so. yeah, that's exactly right. I know there's lots of, of fantastic podcasts out there on Kiss, and which is why, and we've been been fortunate enough to have a, a few members of the band join us on the show as well. But uh, would never want to travel down the road of trying to please the Kiss Army because there is no margin for error. Uh, and yes. lots of argue, lots of daunting uh, man. <laughs> yeah, because there's always somebody who knows some more obscure fact uh, than you do. Uh, you know, and you know, we, you know that's not an audience that I think we could please on a regular basis. But um, right, and and I'm very happy. I must say, and not to toot my own horn here, because I think a lot of people helped me with the book. Certainly, the people I interviewed and mm-hmm. Backbeat Books was wonderful, and the editors. But I've gotten, you know, I'd say nine out of ten. Kiss fans who dig it. There are a few people like, eh, I don't know, because they don't like Destroyer or they think I was too intellectual and breaking it down or too much about Alice Cooper or Bob Ezrin. But, you know, for the most part, I thought it would be 50-50 at best. And I also want to say in addendum that um, I've met and interviewed Ace Freely since the book came out, and uh, he's been very supportive. He loves it, despite the fact that it comes across. This was a tough period for him. Yeah. But to Ace's credit, he, he um, embraces it. And has been very, very kind and said some really nice things and took a picture for me of, of himself with the book, giving the old A's thumbs up. So mm-hmm. I was very happy to get that. Yeah, it is good to get the kind of endorsement of the guys. Um, now, 
What's next for you? I mean, you, you mentioned you, you do some writing. Do you have other books in the work, or is, is this just want to kind of rest and get your life back in order before you start something else? Oh, I wish. Um, no, I, I started, I always start a project prior to ending one. And with a book, it's, you're done with it. I signed with Backbeat in October of 2014, and the book mm. didn't come out till October of 2015. Mm. Um, I just signed with um, with Backbeat for a new book I'm working on on Warren Zevon, uh, okay. singer songwriter from the 1970s, who I also loved and felt that didn't get you know the the recognition. That's kind of my thing now is to make arguments for people who I feel have been looked over. I mean, not the Kiss has been, but for, I think for the wrong reasons they've sort of been dismissed. Um, so I'm working on that now, and I also have another project in the works because I'm almost done with the Zevon book. So I'm always kind of overlapping projects. One that keeps it fresh, and also I'm able to connect the dots. You know, mm-hmm. there's not too many dots you can connect with Warren Zevon or Kiss, except for they were 70s um, rock stars. Uh, but also, um, it's enjoyable for me to not get totally absorbed in one character or one part of the mm-hmm. music business. But the cool thing about Backbeat Books is um, they allow me to continue to work on projects to do with music, which is a, a great love of mine. Yeah, and that, that, that you can certainly tell in the book. You can tell the passion uh, for the music, which you know I think for someone like myself makes it a very enjoyable read. Um, Thanks. And I, and I Thanks. must say that you know got to get the Warren Zevon book on the must-read list because there's a guy, um, you know, he's kind of like what does Van Morrison look like in the you know sort of thing. You don't know anything about him. Um, right. you, know, you know the songs you hear, and, and that's about it. But that was that era of kind of rock before, you know, the internet kind of told us everything we ever wanted to know about an artist. You know, he was, you know, a much quieter public figure. So that'd be excellent to read. Yeah, and, a very very interesting character. And and I must say, if you're interested, there's um, Professor George Plaskides, um of Auburn University. Uh, I wrote a book that came out last year on Warren. I pitched it to my publisher that there were no books on Warren, and uh, his came out. His more of a, a straight biography. Mine is a series of essays on the songs, deconstructing them in a biotic, uh, you know, biographical way. Um, that's a good book. I recommend to your your listeners and yourself. And uh, my book will be out in 2018. But I appreciate the time, John. And and I I want to ask you before you let me go, uh, what did you besides the research and is there something when you read the book that you were like, hey, I'm, I'm glad I read this because now I have a new appreciation. That's really what I was going for. So somebody like yourself who's learned and, and hosts a podcast, I'm just curious to know what you might have gained from, from reading it. I personally enjoyed the um, the lead up to the actual you know beginning of the album where you talk about Alice and um, Bob in, in the extent you do because that was something that to me was a little bit – uh, of a gap in my knowledge, you know, you you know, well, here's what they did in the studio, and they made Ace do this, and they sent him out, and they got Dick Wagner to do that. We knew all that, but you know, to me, I, you know, I'm a fan of Alice, um, always loved his music, but never really studied the history of the albums and, and the kind of things, especially where how Bob worked on them. You know, you knew he was involved with it, but I didn't know a lot of that history, so I really enjoyed that portion of it, um, and I also enjoyed, you know, the the way you kind of in somewhat of an essay form, break down each of the tracks on the album as well. You know, the way you talk about Detroit Rock City, you know, in the opening section of the book, I found really interesting as well. Oh, thank you. Those are the most fun to write. I, I That was one of those things that didn't almost make it in the book, the dramatic narratives of each song. But mm-hmm. like I said, the, the album is not a concept album, but there is so much imagery in it, so mm-hmm. much imagination 
And uh, like I said, and, and everybody who worked on the album said that Bob Ezrin and Kiss were very cinematic, and I think it comes through on that record. I just love the sound of that record. I think it's real heavy and fat, and um, it's got so many different aspects of, to it that really adds to the myth and mystery of Kiss that no other Kiss album hits. So for me, I still get jazz talking about it. His book's been out for over a year, and I appreciate you having me on, but I still dig talking about the record, you know? Yeah, yeah, it it is one of those ones. I think you know the, the Kiss Army will forever debate the album. So, you know, it's always relevant. You know, with, with Kiss merchandise, it's not like a book where you okay it came out and a month later it's you know on a dusty shelf somewhere. I think you know, Kiss albums and Kiss related items kind of have legs of their own. So it was right. it was great uh, to get a chance uh, to talk I, to him. And I would I would look forward to anybody else out there who wants to write one about another Kiss album. I know that just uh, Julian Gill, a good friend of mine now, since I've, I've kind of met all the different Kiss authors, has got a new book out on um, what is what is Tim McFate on, uh, on music from the Elder, which is mm-hmm. a fantastic read. And uh, uh, I, I I love reading about albums and the making of albums. So this was my attempt, and I hope people enjoy it. And um, and I look forward to reading other people's takes on different records. Absolutely. James, it's been a pleasure. Uh, we door is wide open when you get the Warren Zevon book or anything else that comes up in between. We'd love to have you back, man. Thanks, John. All right, again, that was James Campion, author of the book Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's destroyer and the making of an American icon. James's website is jamescampion, that's C-A-M-P-I-O-N.com. You can get the book there. It's also available on Amazon. A great read. Um, I would really recommend anybody who's a KISS fan think they have read all the books on KISS or the more detailed books on KISS. Really a great read. And also want to thank again Chip uh, from Enough's Enough for coming on the show. We invite you to check out our website at ironcityrocks.com. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube are all forward slash ironcityrocks. Or you can contact us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Till next time, I want to thank you for listening. 